gone last week. For those who don't know me, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this time last week, I was up in Utah at Lakeview Church, uh, one of our partner churches in our denomination that we've assisted and helped uh, for a number of years. This is my first time going to a, kind of our annual summer trip to be with them. So this time last week, I was at a camp out with them, trying to assist them, and smelling like smoke and needing a shower. And I'm happy to be here. There's no better place, I think, than to be here at CBC on Sunday morning. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about that and kind of give you a report. I'm actually going to invite Walt to come up and, and give that report so you don't have to hear me talk too much. You, uh, Walt will do a better job kind of reporting on, on what took place as we went out to Utah, kind of from his perspective. I think we were, I hope we were a blessing to them. I know they're a blessing to us. And I'll let Walt talk about that a little bit more. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you for praying for us. There was a group of 17 of us that went. Uh, we had the Halverson family, we had the Conrad family, we had Dale and Ellie friends, Boyd and Chris Waugh, and Myrna and I went. Uh, started out with some LDS orientation. We spent a good share of a day at uh, the LDS temple in Salt Lake City, and we heard testimonies from Jason and Alicia uh, Unruh. They are newly assigned pastors, uh, associate pastors of the church there. Grew up in the, uh, they both grew up in the LDS faith and became disenchanted and followed Christ and are following him wholeheartedly. It was, uh, it was good to, to learn from them. We visited with multiple people. We were encouraged to build relationships, to build relationships that might even carry on for the next year, even long distance. Uh, we visited with Carrie. Carrie is searching for the truth. I don't think she's a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't think she's following, but she's afraid of losing her LDS faith. She wants to follow God. She wants to do what's right. Uh, Part of her fear is that her husband is in business, and without the LDS moniker, that business would struggle. So pray for Carrie. Uh, she feels safe at Lakeview. She knows nobody will turn her into the LDS church. Uh, pray for, I'm going to just talk about a few people. I hope that's okay, because that's what we were there for, was for people. Uh, we met Harry. Harry was baptized just a month or two ago. And uh, he struggles with several things. He also grew up in the LDS church, but he's being discipled and he's growing. He's back to prison as in prison ministry where he, in the same prison he had served as a prison guard for several years. So that's a, a challenge for him. We met uh, Grumpy Nick. We've known Nick for several years. He's the guy that runs sound at the Lakeview Church and his pastor calls him Grumpy Nick. He doesn't smile a whole lot. Uh, he smiled when we talked about bicycling, and uh, he smiled when we talked about men's ministry. He's been teaching men's cooking classes. He's a uh, French gourmet chef. He told me their last uh, project was sushi rolls. Uh, but Nick also was baptized at the same time Harry was, and he and Harry... And Charlie are in a discipleship group. Charlie is a longtime Christian who is discipling 
Nick and Harry. So pray for them. Pray for all three of them. Uh, I had a, an opportunity to reacquaint a little bit with Daryl. Daryl is an atheist. He's too smart to believe in God. Uh, he's a biologist. We met a year ago. We talked about elk hunting and some other things. He's, and, and we visited again. He sought me out a second time to ask why we keep coming back to Lakeview. What it is that draws us back. And, uh, so we talked a little bit about trying to do what's right. We talked about building relationships and we talked about being part of what God is doing in that, in that, uh, church and in that community. Jennifer is a children's ministry leader. She's Daryl's wife. And, uh, you can pray for Jennifer. She told me she struggles to apologize when she, uh, when she loses her cool, when she gets angry with her husband. It's kind of understandable, I guess, But uh, and we all do. But pray for Jennifer. She's got a special needs daughter, and uh, she's working hard to minister and to love her husband. Uh, pray for Mike. Mike is a, is a believer, I believe. He told me in a brief conversation that his son is identifying as Shannon. And uh, she doesn't live, he doesn't live with, with dad. Uh, but dad was excited in a text message. You got a, a note that, sorry, he, she loves dad. So pray for Mike and for uh, Mike's daughter is attending Lakeview's youth group. So she's part of, of the ministry there. And uh, so pray for Mike. Pray for Mike S. Mike uh, told us that uh, he's 300-plus days alcohol-free, recovering alcoholic. They've been part of the church for several years. And Mike promised to come when we're ready to plan a church. He wanted to come here as a, as a part of a partner trip to Olathe. Um, talked about Charlie a little bit. Charlie and Sharon were our hosts, and uh, they're building discipleship relations with Nick and Harry. And uh, Sharon is uh, meeting with Nick's wife, Jenny. Uh, pray for Ellen and Scott. They're they're long-term members of CBC or of, of uh, Lakeview Church. Very generous people. But Ellen asked me to pray for Scott because he'd had a discouraging week. He'd uh, been generous with people and didn't seem to be working out well. And he was considering stepping back. He was on the brink of stepping back from from ministry, from from serving and helping others. We saw him Sunday morning running sound, so I don't think he's he's there yet. But uh, pray for them. Pray for Phil and Melissa Weeb. Phil is the pastor. He told us more than once he was tired. Just worn out. And Aaron gave him the weekend off. Uh, was able to teach, Aaron was able to teach the uh, lessons at the, at the camp out. And uh, Phil and Melissa were there. Aaron did the announcements. I think Phil made two announcements, one introducing Aaron and one asking his people to help clean up after things were done. Uh, Ellen and Becky are part of the leadership team. Pray for them. They were in charge of the, the camp out. Uh, Pray for James Friesen. Pray for, for Will. He's an elder who, who, uh, 
preach the sermon on Sunday. Uh, pray for Amy. She's the gal that runs Dita uh, Cafe, which rents facilities from Lakeview Church. Uh, she's separated from her husband. Uh, we met lots of people. We had a Monday night barbecue. We did lots of stuff. I've talked too long. Thank you for listening. And... Uh, Thank you for praying for us. Pray for Lakeview Church and for the people there. Thank you, Walt. I think that captures that we were there to build relationships, and I would add one more person, if I may, to, to pray for. We're the guy who's helping lead worship while we were at the camp, a guy by the name of Jory Dunn. And I talked to him afterwards and said, you know, have you thought about called a ministry? And he goes, actually, yeah, I have been. And Phil's been pushing me on that a little bit. So it just so happened we were able to come in and say, you know, maybe God is doing something and calling you. So that was my one contribution was able to spark somebody on to, hey, the Lord might be calling you out. So I'd say pray for Jory. Uh, right now, we're going to pray for our children as we dismiss them to Children's Church. So kids ages 3 to kindergarten, 3 to 5, feel free to head back if you haven't already. Join Miss Maggie at the back for Children's Church. We're going to pray for them after we read Malachi 2, 1 through 9. So I'd invite you to turn to the book of Malachi. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. Uh, Cole served us really faithfully and well last week. Um, you know, I almost don't want to put the qualifier on, you know, for his first time. I think just blanket, it was a good sermon, no matter how many times he'd preached before. But in particular because of his, his first sermon here. I'm thankful for Cole and his faithful ministry. Um, we're now back in Malachi 2, so turn there. I'm going to read Malachi 2, 1 through 9, where we'll be this morning. If you'd like, you can stand with me as I read from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, verses 1 through 9. You'll see this is a fun passage, (laughs) as with a lot of Malachi in the prophetic books. It has a somber tone. Malachi 2, 1 through 9 from the ESV says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, To give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Our Father and God, we pray that we would hear your word this morning and this um, strong word to unfaithful ministers 
Lord, may we take it to heart, may I take it to heart. And we stand, and I do stand in fear of your holy name this morning. And at the same time, we love you and want to follow you. So shape us and mold us by your word. We pray for those in this room. We pray for those not in this room who are watching from a distance. We pray for those at Lakeview. In other gospel churches this morning, we pray for the children and children's ministry. May you always be at work among us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a morbid sense of curiosity, you can do what I did. You can Google um, medical malpractice lawsuits and find some interesting things. Uh, I was trying to look up what are some of the highest medical malpractice lawsuits in recent history here in the U.S. I, I found, not surprisingly to, my, to me, that many of them had to do with the, the birth or failed births of children. My dad was a high-risk pregnancy doctor. He retired recently, but that was his line of work. Was He's a perinatologist, high-risk pregnancy doctor. So I know uh, from what he told me about his malpractice insurance that uh, that is a particular area where lawsuits are f- frequent and high um, and not always warranted. Is I've learned not difficult to get sued as a doctor in our society. But sometimes the lawsuits are warranted. And I found one... Uh, example in Arizona where there's a man on life support in an assisted living facility and those who were supposed to be his caretakers decided to mess with his body and after his death they found in him uh, ketchup packages, plastic bags, candy wrappers and things that had been put in him from the caretakers. His widow was awarded $11 million dollars. There's a Florida man who suffered a stroke and was in a coma for four years after anesthesia during a joint manipulation procedure. The man had been experiencing cramps in his leg and shoulder, so his doctor uh, recommended a joint manipulation procedure that would require anesthesia. And during anesthesia, he suffered a stroke and was in a coma for four years. And the doctor later admitted that the procedure was unnecessary and he was only looking to boost his income by it. And the resulting lawsuit was $38.5 million. Those are cases of medical malpractice. What we have in this text this morning is a lawsuit issued by God for priestly malpractice. The priests in Israel were responsible for the worship life in Israel, and God issues a lawsuit against them for their malpractice. What were priests supposed to do? What was a faithful priest to do? Well, they were to be keepers and teachers of the law of God. They were to instruct people in the word of God given through Moses. They were to guard it and teach it. The priests were to be leaders in worship. So when people brought offerings to the temple and to the tabernacle, the the priests were responsible for receiving those offerings and then preparing them an offering before God. They were kind of mediators between God and the people. People bring their offerings, priests would prepare it and offer it up on their behalf. The priests were also there to make moral judgments for people and to settle disputes. So they were interpreters of the law and would apply it to the daily life of the people in Israel. They would make rulings based on the law. These were their responsibilities, and because these were their responsibilities, teaching the word, applying it, uh, leading in worship, offering up worship and sacrifices on behalf of the people, because of these responsibilities, the priests had a great influence 
in the religious and moral life of the community. If the priests were faithful, it would lead to the faithfulness of the people. If the priests were corrupt, the people would be corrupted. And that's exactly what happened in the time of Malachi. There was corruption in the priesthood, and it resulted in corruption in the people. So God brings a lawsuit against them. He calls the people, the priests in particular, to turn. And if they don't, there will be curses upon them. What we learn from this, if I could sum it up shortly, is that God will dishonor dishonorable ministers. God will dishonor dishonorable ministers. It's a lesson we need today. And first of all, to those who are in ministry, in vocational ministry, who have a, a title of some sort of minister, an occupation, this passage is speaking most directly to them, to me. God is addressing the priests, the people responsible to lead in a life of worship in the community. It is a warning against corruption. Do we need this warning today? I've said it before, but I don't think there's two weeks that go by before I hear of some other pastor or leader who's failed in some way and made a mess of their calling, whether it be through personal immorality, through spiritual abuse, abuse of power, through greed, improper use of the church's finances, false teaching, people who slip into unorthodox teaching, whatever it may be. There is a constant drip or stream, it seems, of those who fail in their calling. And this is a word for those who would disqualify themselves. God will dishonor dishonorable ministers. It's also a warning to the whole worshiping community. This is a word to the priests, but it's for everybody. And God is talking primarily to the priests, but he's talking to the whole worshiping community. It's a warning against corruption for all of them, for all who would be ministers. And we are, as the New Testament church, after all, a kingdom of priests. We are all ministers before God, and all of us have some type of ministry or influence among other people. So this is a word and a warning for all of us. And it raises the question, are you faithful in your ministry, in your worship? Whether your ministry be that of a teacher, a parent, a grandparent, a helper, a counselor, a servant, an encourager, an evangelist, whatever it is that you do, whatever ministry you have on behalf of God, this is a warning for you. God will dishonor dishonorable ministers. This is serious business before the Lord. It's a solemn passage, but we need to hear it. And I'm going to work through it, and I'm going to work through it kind of in a unique way. I'm going to work through it backwards. All right. Um, we're going to kind of go from end to the beginning. And as we unpack this priestly malpractice, so I'm going to start in verses 8 through 9. In verses 8 and 9. I'm going to start there, and in verses 8 through 9, we see the priesthood done wrong. Here's where God describes how the priests had gone wrong and what they were doing wrong. He describes... This is how you failed. He details his complaint against them. The priests had done wrong. So skip down to verse 8. We'll start there. The priests had done wrong in verse 8, where God says, But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. 
You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. You'll notice a word is used there, a very churchy word, a word we've talked about before, the word covenant. That is the necessary background. You kind of need to know something about the covenant uh, to understand what God is doing here and really in all the prophetic books. The, the background is always the, the covenant that God has made with his people, Israel. And what is covenant? What does that mean? Well, it's a formal word for an agreement, a contract. An agreement between two people or two parties where there's going to be a transaction. So you made a covenant when you got married where you agreed, I'm going to do this for you. And the other person said, I'm going to do this for you. And two people got married. They made a commitment, a covenant to each other. What they were going to do was a contract. We make these kind of uh, informal covenants all the time. When you buy lunch, you're making a covenant. I go to Chipotle and I say, I'm going to give you a little bit of money. You're going to give me a burrito. We can sweeten this covenant. I'll give you a little more. You throw a little guac on there. That, that's a covenant. We've made a contract with each other. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. And we make these types of agreements all the time. God makes agreements with his people. One of the bigger ones is that covenant that he makes with Moses, or with the people as they leave Egypt before they go into Israel. That covenant of Moses is summarized by the Ten Commandments. This is what is expected of the people. This is how you are to live. And if you live this way, you will be blessed. If you go against these commandments and against my word, you will be cursed. That is the agreement that God makes with his people. Keep your finger here in Malachi if you want and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. You can either uh, turn there or you can just listen. That's fine. But if you want, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. And here, Deuteronomy 11, the covenant of Moses is kind of summed up with, here's what will happen if you're faithful, Israel, to this covenant, or if you are not faithful. Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 through 29. Here God says, see, in verse 26, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So you may wonder, what's the reference there to Gerizim and Ebal? What does this have to do with blessings and curses? Well, here's what's going on. God told the people of Israel, when you enter the land, there, there are a couple mountains that sit next to each other, and you can go there today. And these mountains are kind of close to each other. And if you stand, a big group of people on one mountain, you can see and hear the people on the other. So what God had the Israelites do is, as they entered into the land, half the people went on Mount Gerizim, Half the people went on Mount Ebal. Those on Mount Gerizim recited the blessings of the covenant, of what God would do for them if they were faithful to the covenant that God had given to Moses. 
If they're faithful to the law, they spoke out and they recited, rehearsed the blessings. And then as a demonstration, the other half of the people on Mount Ebal recited and rehearsed the curses. Here's how God would curse us if we are unfaithful to the covenant. It was a powerful picture of two paths that Israel could go down. One path of blessing, one path of cursing. Which mountain would they stand on, Gerizim or Ebal? So with that background, we come to this passage, and God is basically saying, you have gone down the wrong mountain, priests. You have gone down and up the mountain of cursing. You have violated the covenant. Priests, specifically, you have corrupted the covenant. How? And now God lays it out in verses 8 through 9. The priests were to be keepers of the covenant. Their primary role was to ensure that people did not violate it. But they caused many to stumble. That's what the Lord says to the priests. You caused many to stumble. The priests were corrupted and that spread to the people. While we were camping last week in Utah, we... As a family and a bunch of other people, we made a little trek from the, where we were camping in our tents down to uh, a small river or a creek or a creek. Uh, I'm not sure what, what technically makes something a creek, but we'll call it a creek. There's a small river there and a bunch of rocks around. Now, if you have a flowing river and a bunch of rocks and kids and void wah, what's going to happen? <laughs> He would appreciate me throwing him in there with the kids. You're going to throw rocks in the river. That's what happens. You're going to try and skip them, and you're going to try and throw progressively bigger rocks to see how big a splash you can make, right? And that's what we did for a long time. We were throwing rocks in the river and seeing how big a splash could be made. And here's the basic truth of it, which we all know. The bigger the rock, the bigger the splash, right? The more prominent the roll the bigger the fallout. You priests have a large role to play. You are influencers in worship. And when you fall, the splash is big. They had caused many to stumble. So what happens when leaders... Fall, there is a ripple effect that radiates out. That's why James 3.1 says, Not many of you should be teachers. There's a greater burden, greater responsibility. You have influence, outsized influence. And when you become corrupt, other people are corrupted. What was the nature of their corruption? And God says, that You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You did not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The, the core of the corruption of the priests was in their teaching. They did not teach the whole counsel of God, and they applied it unfairly. They would pick and choose. What verses, what passages, what laws of God mattered or applied, and they would pick and choose to whom they applied to. They showed favor in some of their application of the law. So one commentator gave the example of divorce laws. 
And as an example, it may be that for the rich and powerful, they did not apply the divorce laws all that strictly. But for those who did not have power, did not have influence, they were more strict, more rigid about laws concerning divorce. And it could be with any type of moral law. Well, you're a powerful person. You're a wealthy person. We'll give you a little more room, a little more wiggle room. Uh, You don't have power influence. You don't have a way to scratch my back. Then we're going to apply the law strictly to you. The priests were applying the laws with partiality, showing favor to some and not to others. They were not even-handed with the law. That kind of corruption partiality happens all the time. can happen in church, can it not? You know, I know this person is walking in sin, but they have a lot of friends in the church, and I just don't want to cause that wave. If they leave, if they get mad, I'm going to hear about it from so many different people, and I'll just let it go. We're going to be really strict with some people, really loose with others, based on money, power, influence, popularity, whatever it may be. The priests had been impartial in their application of the law and their acceptance of offerings, letting corruption slide. And they had violated the covenant. It's a warning to all those who would be ministers to all those who would be influencers in the church. Make sure your character is correct. Will your character be worthy of your influence? Will you have integrity when it comes to God, his word, his people? The priesthood had gone wrong. So the question is, what does a good priesthood look like? And that's what we see in verses 4 through 7. We've seen the priesthood done wrong. Now, in verses 4 through 7, the priesthood done right. God calls them back to the way it was before, back in the days of Levi and his sons, when this institution first began. The priesthood done right. God gives them a negative example in what they were doing in their current practice and their corruption, their failure to teach the law well. Now we'll go back to a positive example when he first instituted the covenant with Levi. Verse 4 through 7. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So here in verses 4 through 7, I think we have a description of what the priesthood should be, what priests ought to have done. This is what a faithful priesthood looks like. This is what God is commanding them to do. And he refers back to the covenant of Levi. I don't have time to get into it, but... uh, and to show where this pops up, but just, I'm gonna, by way of summary, tell you there is such a thing as a covenant with Levi, I think. So there's the big overall covenant contract with Moses and all of Israel. 
summarize the Ten Commandments. And then within that covenant, there is kind of a specific agreement made with Levi, or the sons of Levi. Levi was one of the original twelve tribes of Israel. And his sons had a specific, uh, his people, that tribe, had a specific agreement with God. So when Israel entered the promised land, all the different tribes were given land, given an area. Here's Benjamin, that's where they go. Dan, Asher, Gad, all of them, they have their separate areas. What about the Levites? Were they given land? No. Why? Their inheritance was the priesthood. You don't get land, you get the priesthood. By God's sovereign choice, he had elected the tribe of Levi to be the tribe of priests, and that was their inheritance. That's the covenant that God made with them. You will be my priests. And at first, it went well. And here's a description of, of what that covenant should look like. This covenant of life and peace. I think it's a job description that's listed out in verses 4 through 7. Now here's where I'm going to make a confession. I don't know what my job description is. Like on paper, I actually, I, I've looked for it, I don't know where it is. So maybe Myrna or somebody could find it for me. Um, I know I saw it when I was first hired eight years ago. Since then, I have not seen it or looked at it. I think I have a general idea from the Bible what I'm supposed to be doing, and I kind of feel my way around. Maybe it would be good for to clarify these things, or what I'm actually supposed to be doing with my time. You probably have some opinions. I'd love to hear them. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, specifically written out what my job description is, but we have, a, I think, a job description for the priests here in verses 4 through 7. There's a few things that the Lord expects from his priests. First, that they would fear his name. That was an expectation. That was the way it was back then. God is calling them back to the original expectation of the priests. The priests feared the name of God. This isn't, you know, a sense of they're horrified by God, but it is a sense of holy awe and reverence, knowing that God has my life in his hands, and I'm going to respect that and not take that for granted. It is a good thing to fear that which can kill you, right? So when we're driving on the road, we have a healthy fear of what can happen if we take our eyes off on their hands off the wheel. We fear other drivers. That is a good and healthy fear that leads to life and peace. If you're remodeling your home or doing work at home, you should have a healthy fear of electrical wiring. That is a good and right fear that leads to life and health and peace. If you do not fear it, it may be disaster for you. The priest did not fear God. They had no fear of his name, and it was disastrous. So they were to have fear of God. Another key component of priestly faithfulness was true instruction. They were to guard knowledge and give instruction in the word. I, I heard somebody say that the best way to guard biblical knowledge is to give it away. And that's what they were supposed to do. That's how they were to guard biblical knowledge. They were to give it away so the people came and sought them for instruction. They were to, in fact, it says they were to be messengers of God. And you may not know, but that word for messenger in Hebrew, what is it? Same word for angel. The angel's a messenger. A divinely appointed communicator of God's word. You priests are to be my angels, my messengers, the ones who speak my word. And I think this is one of the roles of a pastor and preacher today, to be an angel, to be a messenger of God's word. When I was training in seminary and learning how to 
preach and communicate. One of my professors told me, as a preacher, you are not a chef, you are a butler. What does that mean? It means, as a preacher, as a proclaimer of God's word, you are not creating God's word, you are delivering it. You don't make it, you don't make it up. Rather, you deliver it faithfully so that it can be eaten. This is the role of a pastor or a preacher or a priest. They are to faithfully deliver God's word. It is why we have a conviction, at least I have a conviction, I think our leaders have a conviction here, of expository preaching and proclaiming. It means we go through uh, boring books like Malachi and others that are not popular. Why? Because we have an obligation before God to deliver all of his word, the whole counsel of God, not to pick and choose like Thomas Jefferson did when he cut out parts of the Bible he didn't like, but we deliver all of what God has to say, some of it potentially a Offensive, some of it may be embarrassing if we don't interpret it rightly, some of it hard to handle and to grapple, but we are convinced, and I'm convinced, that we raise people, we grow people in Christ, even young people, not by skipping over the hard parts, but by delivering all of what God has to say. We go through it faithfully, we try not to mess it up, we try and communicate it accurately, and we take that responsibility seriously, because this is the role of a priest and a pastor, to be a messenger of what God has said. If I wanted to, and if we wanted to, we could come up with all sorts of fun, clever things. We could shorten sermons to 25 minutes. We could talk about money and sex all the time. We could draw a crowd. But I'm very happy to be boring and faithful. Because we have an obligation before the Lord. To guard biblical knowledge, to teach it faithfully. And wherever I or anybody up here goes astray, you have a responsibility as a church to correct be guardians of the pulpit as our collective responsibility. They were to be messengers. Third, the priests were to walk in peace and righteousness, to walk in uprightness. The word can be literally translated level. Priests are beyond the level. Personal lives in order, walking rightly. As I talked about in the beginning, I don't think anything has taken down more ministry leaders than an immoral personal life. The priests were morally righteous. That's why Paul warns Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. It's not just the words taught, but the life lived that makes a faithful minister. The last expectation, if the priest would do those things, the priest would turn many away from sin. It's the last thing God mentions. The priests of old turned people from sin, turned people from ruin. Faithful priests turned people away from error and saved lives. That's the positive side of influence. As a faithful priest, as a faithful minister... You can keep people from ruin and correct them and turn them towards life and salvation. That's an opportunity I have as a pastor. It's an opportunity you have in whatever ministry you have. A faithful parent, a faithful father or mother can save lives. A faithful grandparent can turn people towards life. A faithful sibling a faithful friend, a faithful neighbor, a faithful counselor, a faithful teacher, can turn people towards life and save lives.
when God's ministers walk with him, teach his word, fear his name, lives are saved from ruin, souls are saved for heaven. This is the role of a priest. I think we have a good job description here. Walk with the Lord, fear his name, teach his word, save his people. That's what the priests were to do. The job description isn't be charming and charismatic and attractive. And I'm happy for that. The job description isn't be the most intelligent person in the room. The job description is not be the nicest person in the room. The job description is not have a lot of followers. What are the metrics of a successful and faithful ministry? As we evaluate our ministry, fear God, walk rightly, teach his word, turn people toward the Lord. The priests of Malachi's time were not doing these things, so God was going to be done with them. And that's what verses 1 through 3 talk about as we work backwards. We've seen the priesthood done wrong, the priesthood done right, now we're going to see the priesthood done with. As God is going to be done with his priests if they do not turn. The priesthood done with, verses 1 through 3. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Here the Lord essentially says, turn or I'm going to be done with you. That's the essential message. What he says, I I want you to take this to heart. Internalize this. Uh, When I'm teaching or correcting my own children, I say a phrase that I've now said too many times, so I think it's lost all meaning with them and I have to come up with something new. Sometimes when you repeat things too often, they just, you know, Start to know. But often when I'm teaching my kids, they can probably tell you, or I'm correcting them, I say, do you understand? I don't know if anybody else uses this phrase, but I say it all the time. Hey, do this, do this. Do you understand what I'm saying? And what I want is for them to hear that, but not only hear it audibly, but to internalize it so that they've processed it, and they say, yes, Dad, here's exactly what you want from me, and I'm going to do it immediately. Like, that, that's, that's the expected, desired result. Some children are better at playing that game than others. Um, but, uh, but the idea is, I want you to take this to heart. I, I don't want you just to nod me off and say, ah, I got it, Dad. No, but, it's, but to really like pay attention and so that it changes your behavior. And that's what God is saying to his people. Take this to heart. Don't just give me lip service. Don't just hear it with your ears. Make this internal so that it changes you. You ought to honor my name. Do you understand Take it to heart to give honor to my name. The priests were to honor God, the name of God. We talked about this last week. This, this section in Malachi talks a lot about the name of God. They were to honor his name. His name stands for his reputation, his character, all that God is. Honor his name. A, a lot of this has been made before. Maybe you've heard this, but I think it's true that we live in generally what we might call a law-based culture, opposed to some other cultures which are more shame-honor cultures. Maybe you've heard that distinction before. But a law-based culture is concerned with right and wrong. 
What is right? What is wrong? What is uh, truth? What is error? And in a law-based culture, you're very much concerned with things in relation to the law. It's how you kind of categorize and think. A shame-based culture, just generally speaking, will more heavily emphasize relationship. Right and wrong and ethics in relation to the community, to the people around me. Will I bring honor or shame to others? So when I tell my kids, you're a Halverson, and that means something, bring honor to the name of Halverson. It means I, I want you to bring a good reputation to our name, to live up to that. That's a honor-shame-based thing. God here, I think, is speaking in honor-shame categories to the priests. Do you represent me well? I am your father. Are you bringing shame or honor to the name of Yahweh by your ministry? The priests were shaming the name of God. So God was cursing them. We go back to the covenant. You've walked away, so you will be cursed. In fact, he was cursing their blessings. There's another role of the priests. The priests were to bless the people. They would speak blessings and by their ministry generally bless the people, meaning that God's grace, God's favor, his goodness would be spread to the people through the ministry of the priests. And there was a specific blessing that they would speak, kind of like a benediction. You may have heard it before from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's called the Aaronic blessing from the name Aaron, the first priest. They were to give blessings, the priests were to the people. And those blessings were to actually have a tangible effect in giving God's grace and favor to the people. Except when the priests were corrupt, their own blessings actually spread corruption and brought curses upon the people. They were not spreading grace, they were spreading corruption. So God says, I'm going to curse you because of this. You're not doing good for the people, you're doing bad. You're making things worse. So God will bring two curses in particular. The first curse says, I will rebuke your offspring. That's how the ESV translates it. This curse that God threatens, I will rebuke your offspring. Now here's the challenging part of this. That word for offspring in Hebrew is seed. Seed could mean a couple of different things. This could actually mean, I will curse your agricultural seed, your plants, your vegetation, your produce, which is one of the curses listed. If you go back to the covenants, if people wandered away from God, God would actually curse their produce, famine. Why would that be a problem for priests? What did priests live off of? The offerings and sacrifices of the people. What if there is a curse upon the food? No offerings or sacrifices to bring. This would be a big problem for the priests. That would be a uh, harsh curse. The other option is, seed refers to your offspring, your descendants. In other words, your descendants, your sons, your offspring, will be cursed. They will wander away from you just like you have. 
Because you've become corrupted and you've wandered away, your children are going to also, and they'll be far from me. Again, a problem for priests. How is the priesthood carried on? Through their offspring, through their descendants. It's a harsh warning. And the last warning is a very in-your-face warning. I will spread dung on your face. It's okay to snicker. And the curse of being covered in dung. The other word for this is awful. Not A-W-F-U-L, which applies, but O-F-F-A-L. Awful, which is the organs and the excrement of the animals. That was not edible, but in sacrifices what was carried away and burned outside the camp. So when people bring their animal sacrifices in worship, priests would carve them up, butcher them up, offer them up, burn them up, eat them, and all would partake of them. But the offal, the, the dung, the, the parts that were excrement, covered and all that, they would be taken outside and burned. And God is saying, I'm going to do that with you. If you do not turn, I'll spread this dung over you. What was a requirement of the priests if they were to lead in worship? What was a requirement for anybody to take part in worship in Israel? They were to be ceremonially clean. What's the opposite of clean? Being covered in dung and taken outside the camp. So what God is saying to the priests is, turn it around, honor my name, or you will be taken out and burned outside the camp as unclean. Two paths, two mountains. You can choose which one you will stand on. Will you give honor to the name of God in your ministry? I don't know, I've done a lot of explanation and, and kind of been a lot of instruction, Old Testament background. Here's the basic application for you. Will you give honor to the name of God in your ministry? Whatever your ministry is. This is something we talk about in our membership classes. When you sign up and say, hey, I'm a member of Community Bible Church. What that means is, do you represent Community Bible Church, not just in this room? Will you bring honor to the church or shame? Will others, family members, friends, coworkers, look at you and say, well, if that's a representation of Christianity, they sound mean and grumpy, hateful. All they do is share stuff online that is critical and mocking others. I want nothing to do with it. When you're baptized, what are you saying? You're publicly declaring, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Will you bring honor to the name of Jesus in your ministry? That is the, the, the choice, the challenge, the warning that's presented before you. And that was the choice for the priests. Bring honor to the name of God. If not, God will dishonor dishonorable ministers. Just quickly in closing, what happened to the priesthood? For a while, for a moment, there is reform and revival. 
maybe because of the preaching of Malachi and Haggai, but under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, we know from our Old Testament, there was a brief revival in the priesthood, a reformation. But it seemed to be short-lived. Before too long, God stopped sending his messengers. There was 400 years or so of silence where God was no longer speaking to his people. So by by the time Jesus came, what did the priesthood look like? Jesus in his ministry often had to challenge the priests because of their corruption. And the priesthood was so corrupt that they, they killed, they rejected God's own son. I think that's the definition of corruption. The definition of an unhelpful, unholy priesthood. We have rejected the only one who is righteous. So then what happens? Well, the temple in Jerusalem falls in 70 AD and the priesthood essentially is done away with. No more temple sacrifices. No more institution of priesthood in the Jewish people. God had done with them. And that would be really depressing and discouraging if we didn't have a faithful priest. The priesthood as an institution, as a system, was never designed to be eternal. It was always designed to end when the great high priest came and did what no other priest could. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the priesthood, the redemption of the priesthood, the one who came and walked with God righteously, who was upright. Jesus Christ, the one who taught the word faithfully and was no respecter of persons and applied it to all evenly. Jesus Christ, who feared and honored the name of God and obeyed everything that the Father said. Jesus Christ, who led in a pure offering, pure worship, who offered up himself for the good and salvation of the people. Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, pure before God, and turned people towards salvation in the kingdom of God. He blessed Many. Jesus Christ is the redemption and the fulfillment of the priesthood as the great high priest. And there's the hope for us, because all of us, from some time to another, are unfaithful ministers. But we have hope that God won't curse us, because we stand under the covering of the one true great priest. There's nobody who should be able to read through these verses in Malachi and say, Oh, it doesn't affect me, I'm good. All of us, one degree or another, are guilty through our imperfection, our imperfect ministry. But we stand by grace in the covering of the perfect priest. That God will not shame us or dishonor us or curse us. Why? Because he has been honored by our older brother, Jesus Christ. And we have our life and our peace in him. It's our hope every week. It's our hope for faithful ministry. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we stand in the covering of Jesus Christ, the great and faithful high priest. 
Lord, we confess our shortcomings to you. This is a difficult passage, um, personally, to read and to not stand in fear. And some of that's healthy and good. We don't want to take any of our ministries for granted, Lord. We want to serve humbly, with reverence and love for you. But we thank you that we get to serve boldly and confidently, not in our own goodness, but in the goodness of Jesus Christ, who works through us by his spirit. So I pray, Lord, and I pray this will be a blessing, that we, as Community Bible Church, collectively would spread grace and goodness, the goodness of Jesus Christ, that we would turn others away from sin and towards life in you, that would use us by your grace and by your spirit. We pray these things in the name of the great priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.